0: Welcome back to Counted as Cast. Bill White pulled a pistol from his belt. He aimed at one of the deputies guarding the jail and fired. We're at the climax of the Battle of Athens. In today's podcast, you'll find out what happens to Bill White, Paul Cantrell, and the idealistic GI ticket that kicked off the bloody chain of events leading to the showdown at the jail. We'll also talk about the media response to this event. Remember, up until now, there has been little in the way of reporting. Only a few journalists were on site, including J.B. Collins, who we've mentioned a couple times, But, nothing had really gone gonzo, so to say. Hunter S. Thompson would be proud of some of the reporting that was about to happen. Pictures from the showdown will grace the cover of the New York Times. People high and low will comment on what happened. Later, I'll describe what came of the raucous night of August 1st, 1946, and how it might have actually shaped your life today. But, without further ado, without me delaying any more, Let's start where we left off in the last podcast. Bill White fired his pistol. He scored a hit on a deputy. Why wouldn't he? You're talking about a veteran of a foreign war who slogged through the jungle for months, killing Japanese with rifle and bayonet and pistol and anything else he could get his hands on. Around him, he had gathered a group of men who had fought in the Pacific as well as in Europe. In their hands, they held firearms that they had grown up with, the farm boy shotguns for instance, and weapons they brought to war, like the Enfields. Now, Bill White taking that first shot is not without dispute. I mean, what conflict doesn't have disputes about the first shot? The Red Book claims that the Cantrell forces fired first. Allegedly, deputies used a shotgun. Corroborating that story is a man named David Miller, who had turned onto the street and gotten a shoulder full of shot. Fifteen pellets, according to the Red Book. So, birdshot pellets hit others, too. But Bill White tells a different story, and sticking with Bill's story for a moment, he said that his shot hit one of the deputies who fell across the steps of the jail. He took another shot. By the time he took his second, others had followed his lead. Those were the people behind him on the hillside. Shots rained down on the jail from the hillside like a stampede of lead. The brick jailhouse chipped and stone sang with the impact. Bullets ricocheted across town. People a half a block down died for cover as bullets whizzed and popped in passing. A farmer in coveralls stood in the middle of the street and screamed at the sky, Oh dear Lord God Almighty, oh dear sweet Jesus, help me, help me. J.B. Collins, journalist from the Chattanooga Times, said that, quote, People were scattering like chickens in a hailstorm, end quote. Another great line out of Athens, Tennessee. That's definitely one way to describe it. Now, in the last podcast, I went into great detail about what kind of armaments these people had. You'll remember that they had stolen a load of guns from the National Guard armory, particularly 60 Enfield rifles. Now, these are not modern assault rifles. These are what are called battle rifles firing full-powered rifle cartridges, the kind you might use to hunt deer. In addition to the 60 rifles on the GI side, I'm sure that the deputies had their own armaments as well. With regard to the training G.I.s might have gotten on these rifles, I've read that a soldier trained on one of the bolt-action battle rifles could fire between 20 and 30 rounds per minute. So, put yourself in the position of people in this small American town when 60 Enfield rifles went off. The noise echoing between the buildings must have been incredible. Since these rounds have full power, the ricochets could have caused some serious damage across town. People were right to run. People were right to stand in the middle of the street and scream at the sky. Bill White describes how the battle went, quote, "...they began to shoot out of the jailhouse at us, and every time they'd shoot, we'd open up a volley of fire. You wouldn't believe how them 60 men with them thirty out 6 rifles sounded, and man, that scared them people to death down there in the jail, a lot of them." End quote. If Cantrell's forces expected to be shot at that day, they'd expected varmint rifles and thrown stones. Maybe some of the pistols grabbed off the deputies. The sheriff's office definitely did not expect military hardware. I can only imagine the mass panic that went off inside the jail. As Bill White said in his little speech, many of these deputies had never seen battle. Some had dodged the draft precisely to avoid the situation that they were in. They'd never heard anything like the ferocity of that many guns firing at once. Heck, many of them had only fired their guns probably a few times in their lifetime, and never in anger. Bill White continues his description here, and I've modified what he says for clarity. Quote, And the battle went on, raged on. But before the battle started, I'd sent six men down there to the corner of the street to open fire in the direction of the courthouse to scare those deputies down there. Lots of deputies down there at the courthouse to keep them going and joining up with deputies up at the jailhouse. And they sat down there and filed several rounds through the courthouse, held them all at bay down there. End quote. In other words, what he's saying is he also had people covering the courthouse, which was Precinct 1. But as the firing started, Bill's scouts reported back to him that deputies slipped out of the rear door of the jailhouse. He says, quote, Well, one scout came back and told me some of them were coming out of the jail and running off. I said, that's good. Don't fire on them if they're running, if they're not armed. Let them go. They were throwing down their arms and leaving that jail behind, end quote. As Anna Faktorovich says in her poem, cutting supply lines about this battle, quote, some cities have stood under attack for years, but Sheriff Mansfield was only holding on to a job, End quote. Would you stick around at a gunfight to hold on to your job? Don't answer that out loud if you're listening to this at work. Fleeing deputies would no longer be a threat, and I think the GIs that didn't anticipate a counterattack from fleeing mercenaries paid to do the dirty work that day. This act of reprieve for fleeing deputies brings up another idea. The G.I.s were not really there to kill. They wanted the ballot boxes. They wanted a free and fair election. If the Cantrell machine gave up the ballot boxes, they'd probably stop shooting. They did not stop shooting, because the Cantrell machine fought back. Return fire streamed from the jail. Inside, the deputies all had pistols, but many had brought their long guns to the party, too. Looking at a picture of the jail, you can see that they only had about a half a dozen firing positions plus the front doorway. All return fire involved sticking your head up above the window sill. It must have been brutal to even attempt a defense. Even if they stayed away from the windows and relied on the brick to shield them, those 30-odd 6 rounds entering the brick went wild. Men in the jail screamed, blood ran across the floor. Red spattered sleeves and captured ballots. Then, as the shooting went on and the men in the jail realized how thoroughly they were trapped, the lights went out. Wow, can you imagine? GIs outside cut the power to the building. Deputies had to reload guns in the sweat and blood slick dark. At around 10 p.m., the Knoxville Journal, down in Knoxville, managed to get a call into the jail. They wanted commentary from the men inside on what happened. Pat Mansfield took the call. He didn't talk long. He shouted into the phone to be heard over the shooting and said, quote, I can't talk anymore. There's mob violence here at the county jail right now. Things are too hot here right now. I haven't got time to talk to you. I'm standing in the front door, End quote. The Knoxville Journal and J.B. Chickens in a Hailstorm Collins weren't the only press on the scene. Most dramatic was probably local radio station WLAR, WLAR had only started in May of 1946. It was the only station between Knoxville and Chattanooga and thus had the real monopoly on all things going down in McMinn County and specifically Athens. Just to give you some context, the grand old Opry music show on the radio started in 1925. Little Athens, Tennessee was, well, you could say, behind the technological curve because that's what makes this story awesome. After years of minding its own business, McMinn County was about to embrace 20th century technology. Chuck Redfern on the scene with WLAR broadcasted live. These radio broadcasts probably sounded alarming. Apparently, Chuck got the broadcast right across the street from the jail, because that's where the WLAR studios were, meaning the sound of gunfire would have been present if the mic had enough fidelity. Now, all this shooting's been going on for a couple hours. So as the 11 o'clock hour dragged on, both sides started to realize how much ammunition they'd already burned through. Mansfield actually hadn't gotten those 20,000 rounds of ammunition he'd bragged about, but the GIs also had limited ammunition and a lot of different calibers to cover their firearms. On the other hand, the GIs could go out and fetch more ammo, which they did. The deputies had no mobility at all. The GIs melting away from the hillside to look for ammunition actually had some success, McMahon County had, and still does have, a pretty vibrant hunting culture. Paul Cantrell himself did some bird hunting. As a result, stockpiles of ammunition and weapons were in the taking. There's some evidence the G.I.s went back to that National Guard armory and broke in again and grabbed more ammunition. As the fire slowed down, the mood around the jail changed. Return fire from the Cantrell gang slowed to almost nothing. On the GI side, fire continued, but the Red Book has a great passage about the almost festive atmosphere that started to arise around the jail. Quote, from the hillside, fire rose and fell in disorganized cascades. More than anything else, people were simply shooting at the jail. Someone would shoot a while, then go sit around and talk or get something to eat. People would come and go, shoot a while, go drive around town and report on what was happening to friends and family and then go back and shoot some more. A single rifle might be traded around four or five different people during the course of the night, end quote. Sounds like fun. I saw one report that said people used the occasion to give younger kids a lesson on night shooting. Other gunmen took to the rooftops and gained higher shooting positions looking down on the jail. One estimate was that thousands of rounds were fired between sunset and midnight. Pictures from that night are interesting in themselves. They captured something special. And shocking, really. What's shocking to me is that the pictures of the G.I.s are pictures of very, very, very young people firing rifles. They look like kids, and the thing is that they are kids by modern standards. Don't forget that Bill White went to battle at age 17. In the pictures, these kids lean backward to steady their aim as they fire freehand shots at the jail. In fact, the shooting around the jail calmed so much that people came into town not knowing anything about the conflict. I guess they hadn't turned on radios anywhere. For instance, listen to this story. A Cantrell ally and the administrator of a nearby state prison, Major Biscuit Ferris, yes, he was apparently called Biscuit, came by the jail to see the results of the election. I believe Biscuit Ferris had offered to give Cantrell some of his inmates to help with the vote count. Another great moment in the Cantrell political machine. As far as I can tell, Biscuit was an old Cantrell political ally, and he knew how these things were supposed to go. He gathered at the jail at the end of the night to do all the counting. Biscuit Ferris drove into a darkened Athens. It was getting late. Not seeing much and hearing no disturbances, he entered through the back door of the jail. That's the same back door that served as an escape route, so deputies were running off in the night, and nobody was there to stop them. It turns out that Biscuit Ferris walked into the jail totally unknowing. They didn't have smartphones. My smartphone goes nuts every time there's lightning and thunder. I can't even imagine what an armed insurrection would do. Anyway, when the major strolled into the jail, oblivious to the siege, he came upon the deputies. They were hiding behind anything that could flip over for cover. The major must have smelled the blood and gunpowder. When the deputies told him what was going on, he said he was going to call Governor McCord's office. Biscuit raised the receiver to his face, and right then, the shooting resumed. Biscuit Ferris took a bullet to the jaw, taking off most of his jawbone and a good part of his face. Biscuit Ferris would sit in the jail, bleeding from the garish wound for the rest of the conflict. In between the blasts of gunfire, words were exchanged between the two parties. The G.I.s demanded surrender. The deputies would curse and cuss back at him. But sometime during the 11 o'clock hour, as the shooting slowed and the drawn-out siege started... The deputies reportedly made an alarming move, escalating the already fraught situation. Pat Mansfield, sheriff, shouted that if the G.I.s did not stand down, he would execute the hostages inside. Three G.I. hostages were in the jail. One was a G.I. named Ellis, who you might recall got arrested early on in the election day of August 1st over at the courthouse. Execute hostages. This was definitely a bizarre turn. You're talking about lawmen threatening to kill helpless men that they themselves had arrested. Democrats had wiped their butts with the state constitution all day. They'd screwed up voting processes, they'd beat people up. But executing prisoners, this was next level. But that's how desperate the Cantrell crew had gotten. I have to wonder whether the GIs actually took this seriously. It didn't seem like they thought much about it, because Bill White continued the siege. The G.I.s on the hillside did not let up, even after the jailbirds stopped shooting. An ambulance pulled up beside the jail at one point. The G.I.s held fire, assuming it was for the wounded. When deputies piled into it like a clown car, the G.I.s shot out the tires and sent the deputies right back into the jail. One tradition has it that Paul Cantrell and Pat Mansfield slipped out of the jail as the ambulance trundled away. What I'm reading is both that the ambulance got its tires shut out and stayed there, and another that it drove off. Maybe it's two ambulances. It's Schrodinger's ambulance in here. This is textbook fog of war. Eyewitness accounts of something like this, especially something as loud and raucous as a battle, are pretty tricky. We'll stick with the narrative that Mansfield and Cantrell got out a different way. Despite the GIs having complete control over the situation, in the sources you get the impression that a certain desperation started to sink in among them. I think they expected the Cantrell camp to give up, I think they expected them to give up when they opened fire with 60 military rifles. I think they expected them to give up when they cut power to the building. But none of that had worked. Instead, they were threatening to execute prisoners. Another fear started to fester among the GIs. WLAR had broadcasted to its range. Other radio stations piggybacked that onto their broadcast, pushing the message further. Reporters on the beat used whatever phones they could find in town to phone back to their respective headquarters, like formerly arrested J.B. Collins, who called back to the Chattanooga Times. Word began to spread around Eastern, then all of Tennessee, of the riot going on in Athens. Moments before the G.I.s decided to cut the phone lines, a county justice of peace in the jail took a call from the Chattanooga Times. I know, I know, justice of the peace. The iron isn't lost on me either. He said to the Chattanooga Times, quote, We have eight wounded and two dead in here. Sheriff Mansfield can't get to the phone for the shooting. He told me to tell you to send help. End quote. The Chattanooga Times put that tidbit about two dead in production for the morning edition of the paper. That rumor would go far. Another rumor started to spread. I haven't been able to figure out the origins of it, but the rumor must have terrified the patriotic GIs. The governor had heard about the conflict and mobilized the 6th Regiment of the Tennessee National Guard. That meant that the state of Tennessee might be on their way to establish law and order. The G.I.s might soon find themselves facing down the rifles of fellow enlisted men, and remember that they'd broke into the armory of the same guardsmen. Suddenly, the localized conflict took on greater proportions. A quarter to one in the morning passed. The G.I.s had waited— no National Guardsmen had shown up from the Chattanooga barracks. The G.I.s had to be wondering when the hammer would drop. They decided to keep the siege going. The deputies again threatened the prisoners, but this only emboldened Bill White's gang. The G.I.s went to the WLAR offices and commandeered the speaker that was usually outside to play the broadcast to the sidewalk. Chuck Redfern gave him the mic. On the speaker, they made a new threat. They told the Cantrell gang, Come out with your hands up, we will use dynamite. You see, in the background, Bill White and his bandits had been doing some homework. Bill White indicates that he sent out a few men to dig up explosives. Back in 1946, dynamite was actually kind of hard to get your hands on. Anything that could explode had been sent by the U.S. government overseas to war zones. Some sources say that the dynamite was from the local hardware store, but another account is that some allies just happened to show up with it. How convenient. Other GIs went out and fetched materials to make Molotov cocktails using an oil-gasoline mix. Bill White indicates that they started throwing the bottles first, but they didn't really do much damage or make much of a difference. The bottles they'd fetched were way too big to throw that far. The jumping flames probably did get some cheers, though. Nothing like a fire to raise the spirits. Wherever they'd retrieved it, Bill White and his hand-picked men began to tape together explosive charges. They'd told the deputies exactly what they were going to do, but had heard nothing. A few more deputies slipped out the back door of the jail, but the majority stayed with the ballots. Maybe Cantrell's gang thought the GIs were bluffing. Now, why you would doubt a guy like Bill White, I don't know, but these were not men to doubt. Bill White describes what happened when they threw that first bundle with its lit fuse at around 2 a.m. Quote, And we'd rear back and throw them. Well, we couldn't throw them all the way to the jail, but we got them out to the cars. They'd blow them cars up in the air and turn them over and land them back down on top. Several cars down there was blowing up. End quote. Another account of the dynamite attacks had men doing drive-by bombings. Someone would hang out the passenger side window and throw sticks of dynamite as they zoomed on by. If you'd been there, you'd probably have smelled the burning oil, gunpowder, and felt the pulverized stone underfoot. Someone had shot out the streetlights, and with the power cut to the jail itself, only the Molotov fires lit the humid night. Where before, you heard the staccato noise of gunfire, as a resident of Athens, you now heard explosions. To Cantrell and the gang, it must have sounded like the footsteps of giants pounding toward them from down the hill. These weren't men who'd fought and been under artillery fire. These were men guarding a bunch of pieces of paper. Important pieces of paper. Really important pieces of paper, but pieces of paper. Deputies began to plea with Cantrell to surrender. According to the Red Book, Cantrell refused, not out of stubbornness, but because he swore that they'd be massacred if they left. The National Guard Hound showed up. The end game was at hand, and he was scared. The GIs decided that the quarterback toss and the drive by strategy wouldn't cut it. Bill White claims that he had a better idea. I kind of buy his story, actually, given the other war stories that he told. Bill says that he made a few charges and crawled. Quote, I crawled up and put a charge outside the jailhouse porch, crawled back behind the building there, and it went off and blew the porch up. I didn't get no answer out of them. It was getting long, we'd been fighting there, you know, for about four or five hours. I had this other big charge, so I went up and laid it right up against the jail. It was bigger than the other one I'd put out earlier. When it went off, it jarred that jail, woo, like that. End quote. I want to take a moment to turn aside from the explosion and say that I think, in terms of this narrative, this was about as close as Bill White and Paul Cantrell got. After this, they won't talk to each other, as far as I know. I don't really think they had any conversations. There could be things that happened in the intervening years. But for the purposes of this podcast, when Bill White crouched outside the brick of that jail, only a few yards separated our two heroes. And now back to the explosions. If you're Paul Cantrell sitting inside that building, with the revenge of your constituency exploding outside, what's going through your mind? Your family? Your career? Are you praying, thinking of an exit strategy? I wonder what it was like to be a fly on the wall in that jail as those explosions started. These men were already exhausted and many of them injured. Then Bill White's final charge went off. This blast ripped out most of the front of the building, sending masonry flying into the street. Bill White said about it, quote, First thing I know, here come a bunch of white flags out the door, end quote. At this point in the recording, Bill White starts laughing. Yes, they note this. Typical Bill White, right? Deputies waved what was vaguely white at that point, including their handkerchiefs. Someone from the jail yelled, quote, We give up. Stop firing and we'll come out, end quote. On the hill, the G.I. said, Come out with your hands up. Come on out, you. Inside of the jail, a burst of activity occurred. Men pushed and shoved in the dark, rushing down to the door. The men exiting the jail raised their hands high and hooked the trigger guard of their pistols onto their fingers. There's a really incredible picture of two deputies who have just come out of the jail, hands raised. The man on the left has an expression of primal terror. The man on the right just looks tired. The siege was over, but the riot had begun. Or, should I say, continued. I mean, this has been one giant riot, hasn't it? Bedlam started at the entrance to the jail. Deputies fleeing became part of a GI crowd going inside. The Red Book says, quote, It looked like two large schools of fish suddenly meeting each other, coming around a blind corner, end quote. Dust from the explosion still hung in the air. According to one account, Paul Cantrell realized he'd been right. Maybe if the guard had showed up, or any third party really, he'd have been able to exit gracefully. It hadn't happened. Outside, the sounds of scuffles started. GIs were charging into the jail, pushing aside deputies, shouting. Shouting. The situation had gone from live fire to something new, something sinister. Cantrell threw down the gun he was holding, allegedly a Thompson submachine gun, and also discarded the article of clothing that had distinguished him through his entire career. That's right, his white Stetson hat with its black band. He took off his glasses, too, which had to make his escape all that more difficult. Cantrell headed for the rear of the jail. He probably hoped to escape the same way his deputies had. A few others had the same idea. But as Cantrell exited the jail, and had only taken a few steps from the door, he halted. A rifle was pointed right at him. The young GI holding it stared down the sights. Cantrell's breath caught in his throat. After surviving hours of siege, he was about to die at the hands of one of his constituents. But before the young man could fire, another figure came out of the shadows. This older man, presumably another GI, pressed down the young GI's rifle. Cantrell didn't wait. He fled. Cantrell ran for the Daily Post-Athenian newspaper headquarters. He figured he'd be less likely to be gunned down with the press present. Probably not a bad idea, but the normal rules of engagement had ended. Behind him, around the jail, he heard shouting and screaming. Dark things were happening back there. A GI came around the corner near Hornsby Street. The man saw Cantrell and cursed. Here's the son of a bitch! The G.I. pulled the 45 caliber pistol and aimed at Cantrell from just 10 feet away. Cantrell knew he couldn't do anything at such close range, and he watched the man pull the trigger. And nothing happened. The gun clicked. It had misfired. The G.I. continued to try to fire the gun. It continued to malfunction. Cantrell ran as fast as he could. The G.I. eventually broke off a half-hearted pursuit. Paul Cantrell... Disgraced state senator fled into the dark back at the jail. You had pandemonium and pandemonium makes for good pictures. Fortunately, our friend J. B. Collins from Chattanooga was there to take some photos that we now have today. I'm looking at one of them right now, which is in the red book. They call this the classic picture from the Battle of Athens. The picture itself is chilling; it actually shows a deputy being escorted by a G.I. This deputy's name is Minus Wilburn, and I'll talk about him a little bit more in a second. There's a maple tree beside them. The street underfoot is dirt, and that's like most of Athens, if you recall. The picture's clearly at night, and there's a car in the background as well. When you look at the deputy, Minus Wilburn, you realize that there's somebody behind him, and there's an arm coming around his neck. It's a little bit blurred... And that's because it's in motion. In that hand is a knife. That knife is cutting the throat of Minus Wilburn, this deputy. Somebody actually ran up behind him as this GI was escorting him out of the area and cut his throat. Nobody actually knows who did the deed, but our friend J.B. Collins managed to capture kind of the quintessential picture of this riot. In my opinion, he should have won a Pulitzer for that photo. Minus Wilburn, the deputy stumbled away, bleeding. The wound was not deep, it had only been a pocket knife, and he would go on to recover. Elsewhere, a group of G.I.s got a hold of a deputy you probably remember from the wet work chapter, our last chapter, named Wendy Weiss, the one with the the rooster haircut. He is also the guy who shot Tom Gillespie, of course, the black farmer trying to practice his right to vote. G.I.s dragged Wendy Weiss into the street, and then the beating started. Bill White said in his oral history that, quote, One that shot the Black, you know, we pitched him out there and they liked to kill him. They beat him almost to death, end quote. One drunken G.I. was ready to execute Wendy Weiss on the spot. The source says that it was the intervention of Otto Kennedy that saved Wendy Weiss. Another says that it was actually Ralph Duggan that intervened to save Wendy Weiss. Someone, though, saved this guy from being beaten to death by a farmer's shotgun on the charred streets of Athens. Bill White says that as the riot progressed, deputies were thrown into cells in the jail. Injured deputies were brought to the hospital. Quote, "...all but 20 were beat up pretty bad, and they put them in the hospital. The one they'd cut the throat, they took him to the hospital, and they picked up a bunch of men whose arms were shot off, legs were shot off, shot through the belly. You know, first one thing, there were several of them hurt pretty bad." It's hard to imagine this scene. You're getting on till 3 o'clock in the morning. You've got men in the street, men shot through, others beaten and then dragged back into the hellscape of the jail. Fire and smoke probably made your eyes sting, and underfoot there was thousands of shell casings. In another picture from that night, you see two little boys sleeping in the doorway of a closed shop, maybe waiting for their father to get back from the front lines. In the riot, a GI grabbed a deputy and announced, I'm going to blow your brains out if you don't tell me where Mansfield is. Another man took a knife to the chest. A black man arrived in the square with a rifle, intending to kill Wendy Weiss as revenge for Tom Gillespie, but couldn't find him. Someone else produced a noose and wanted to begin public hangings. The pent-up aggression of ten years flowed through angry hearts. That emotion had possessed a highly trained, heavily armed populace going after a distinct goal. These men had skills that saw them through great danger in the greatest war we've ever seen. The rules of engagement in the total warfare of World War II were grim. All of that came into play as they carried out the Battle of Athens and then survived this riot. Fortunately, some of the GIs had cooler heads, They knew what was going to happen and how badly it was going to end, and they acted accordingly. By shepherding deputies out of the area, to the hospital, to the jail, they managed to get the heat off of people. This fixed aggression on inanimate objects, primarily cars, especially deputies' cars. Cars that hadn't been flipped got flipped. Storefront windows had bricks thrown through them. People took out their aggression on whatever was around. People shredding their own community in anger never makes sense, but it's happened for as long as people have mobbed and rioted. As the carnage went on, someone had to step up. Allegedly, Ralph Duggan, the Republican operative, arrived and tried to calm the violence, picking out the oldest and the most experienced GIs to control the crowds. The bloodlust was up, so someone needed to say something and calm it down. Allegedly, Duggan jumped on top of a car and gave the following speech. "At ease." We have gained our objective. I'm not a murderer, and I know my friends here are not murderers. Let's treat these men right. Better than they would treat us. We're not beasts. We must not do anything here we'll be ashamed of. When the state patrol or home guard or national guard comes in the morning, we'll show them everything is all right. Let's not spoil the fruits of victory now. When they come in the morning, we'll dictate the peace terms. Rhetoric, the art of persuasion through speech, is as old as humans forming coherent thoughts and putting them to words. A well-placed speech can halt even the firestorm of a battle. Duggan's speech actually calmed things down. Though I also imagine that the complete exhaustion helped simmer everything down as well. The sun would come up in just a few hours. The GIs and the rest of the observers started to filter home. Many lived just a few blocks away from the shooting and the dynamiting, the explosions, and all the violence. Well, I should say that actually most of the mob went home. Some of the G.I.s knew the danger that they were still in. I don't know who gave the command, but G.I.s started posting guards at various points around town. Rooftops, road checkpoints to prohibit vehicle access, patrols. Tired G.I.s locked down the jail and kept the uninjured deputies under heavy guard. You know, paranoia actually means unfounded or exaggerated fears. The G.I.s weren't paranoid. They were ready. An armed insurrection with modern weaponry, even against a tyrannical local government, would hit the headlines in a big way the next day. Nobody had seen anything like the Battle of Athens since, at the very least, the bonus marches in the early 30s. In that conflict, World War I veterans who'd been denied their benefits marched on Washington. Thousands were hurt, and some died. Many of the G.I.s knew that people would be coming to town from all directions come morning. With the hammer of public attention about to drop, they needed to do something about the guns. A lot of government rifles circulated among the rioters, and according to the story, the G.I.s collected rifles, oiled and cleaned them, and then brought them back to the armory. There was, of course, all that missing ammunition, but I think that was actually a pretty wise move on their part. Sorry, officer, we don't know what happened to the ammo, but these guns are looking awfully nice and clean. I like to imagine a group of G.I.s furiously cleaning the guns at three in the morning. Ralph Duggan, the Republican who just gave that rousing speech, then got a call. It was Democrat Governor McCord, who had contemplated aloud that he might send in the National Guard. Ralph assured him that the situation was under control and that the Guard wasn't needed. The governor said, quote, Mr. Duggan, when Sheriff Mansfield returns, I'm sure he will put everything back into order, End quote. Duggan replied, quote, Governor, you don't understand. Sheriff Mansfield is not coming back, End quote. Now, what, what was going on here? Was the governor really that clueless? Then again, my opinion of Governor McCord is not that high. Maybe he thought all the fuss was overblown, and they just had another corrupt election. It started like the others, right? Clubs to the head, shootings. But the explosion of violence at the Battle of Athens was about to create a new order, and everyone who'd witnessed it knew that. Later, we'd find out that McCord had really considered sending in the guard— but the mobilized units had stopped short of charging north into Athens. They'd stayed put, on standby, waiting to hear final word. This was a lucky break for the G.I.s, but I imagine everybody in the McCord administration knew the optics of charging into that riot. Having guardsmen shooting at retired G.I.s on the night of his own successful reelection would not look good. Even Governor McCord, as unintelligent as he seems, knew that dead G.I.s weren't a great way to start his new term. G.I.s, of course, were looking for Mansfield, and they were also looking for Paul Cantrell. They didn't find him, even after combing the town for the rest of the night. We'll get back in touch with Paul Cantrell later, because in the meantime, the G.I.s filed a statement that went out over the radio station and through the Daily Post-Athenian newspaper. Quote, The G.I. election officials went to the polls unarmed to have a fair election, as Pat Mansfield promised. They were met with blackjacks and pistols. Several GI officials were beaten and the ballot boxes were moved to the jail. The GI supporters went to the jail to get these ballot boxes and were met by gunfire. End quote. Interesting choice of words, right? Because Bill White claims that he fired first. Also note the use of being verbs. The GIs were met with and the ballot boxes were moved. It really does make the Cantrell gang sound like an overwhelming faceless force. They actually go on here, quote, The GI candidates had promised that the votes would be counted as cast. They had no choice but to meet fire with fire. In the precincts where the GI candidates were allowed watchers, they lead by a three-to-one majority. And now in the press release it actually goes into all capital letters. The GIs are elected and will serve as your county officials beginning September first, nineteen forty-six. End quote. The GIs counted ballots in the jail when the statement went out on the wire and the jail counters came up with a rough ratio of 2 to 1, a clear majority, but many of the ballots had also been destroyed during the riot, which is probably how they came up with the 3 to 1 majority that they mentioned in that press release. I don't think an accurate count could ever really been made given the circumstances. Around 5 in the morning, the phone rang at the Daily Post Athenian. George Woods, a Cantrell ally, phoned in claiming to have talked with Frick and Frack, and by that I mean the duo of corrupt politicians Paul Cantrell and Pat Mansfield. Woods said that they had conceded the election and would stand down for the GIs. The GIs that were still awake probably cheered. Reasonable people had gotten a few hours of rest. The sun began to rise and roosters started crowing. My own rooster, Jumpy, has a pretty healthy crow. Here he is to stand in for all the Athenian roosters from the 1940s. Unless you're very fortunate, you've probably had some kind of a natural disaster pass through your area. Snowstorm, tornado, riot, who knows. When I was a kid, a fearsome hurricane named Hurricane Bob passed through... And in the days after, we walked around town to gawk at the destruction. I lived on the coast, and boats were in people's yards. There were ruined houses, flood damage. You can't really help yourself when a natural disaster comes through. You have to get down there and check it out. They don't call it rubbernecking for nothing. On August 2nd, 1946, crowds began to gather, many of them on two hours of sleep. I can imagine coffee was passed around, maybe even some day drinking for the nerves. People found smoldering cars, crumbled masonry, and more shell casings than you could count in the dusty streets around the jail. The atmosphere wasn't fearful or solemn. Not at all. In fact, people collected brass shells as souvenirs and traded rumors. There's a really a bunch of fantastic pictures of the day after the battle. What you see are men and women, young and old, many with mouths open, either talking or gawking. Looking at the pictures, there's a lot of people standing around with their hands on their hips. You know the stance. It's the stance people take when they're standing around a bonfire or looking out over a vista. Looking at the pictures, you can almost hear people saying, What in tarnation? Or, would you look at that? Or, what a mess. GIs who'd fought the night before were definitely in attendance. If they wore their fatigues, their uniforms now probably had a lot of spent powder, blood, and dust on them. But now, with the fog of war cleared, and daylight giving everyone an impression of the battleground, what became clear was that nobody died. That's right, nobody died. Thousands of rounds of ammunition spent, Molotovs, dynamite, mob violence, people getting their throats cut and jaws shot off, people bleeding in the jail. Yeah, how in the world did nobody die in this conflict? Wasn't everyone trying to kill each other? Well, not so fast. I have a few theories on this. Let me digress from the narrative a minute to explain. There's a famous study in military history by a guy named S.L.A. Marshall, who was a journalist with the U.S. Army's historical section during World War II. Marshall interviewed G.I.s about their experiences after battle. By after battle, I mean right after the battle. He grabbed guys coming off the battlefield and would sit them down and try to understand what had just happened. He invented this thing called the post-combat interview in order to understand how battle took place in reality and what people experienced. His studies were impressive in detail, and his conclusions were novel for the time. One of his claims actually shocked everyone, from the public up to the military brass. He said that in the worst war humanity had ever seen, World War II, only 15-25% to 25% of soldiers ever fired their weapons in combat. Ever. Ever in combat and he claimed that if they did shoot their weapons, they stopped pretty soon after that. In other words, the men didn't fight with other men. This study opened up a whole new field called killology, which tried to understand whether, why, and how people killed each other. To say that S.L.A. Marshall's study was controversial is a bit of an understatement, but his work is cited often because it brought up the idea that killing someone else is actually pretty hard, even in the worst of circumstances. I like to think that some of that reticence to kill was at play in the Battle of Athens. I'm not saying that men didn't fire their weapons, but I don't think people were interested in killing either. Bill White reports that he tagged at least two men with his pistol. People received injuries that marred them for life and even lost limbs. We know that Biscuit Ferris had his jaw shot off. But I have to wonder whether, at a certain point, the shooting was a lot of loud noises and not a lot of aiming. If my speculation has some truth to it, you have to wonder if it's because of the civil nature of this conflict, too. These guys all knew each other. Families worked and lived next to one another, and they worked in different factions, right? Republicans, Democrats, Old Guard, New Guard. Besides some of the deputies grabbed from out of state, these people all had to live with each other on August 2nd. I actually have another theory, and that's thanks to my father, Dr. Robert Caverly, who grew up in the South himself. I was telling my father about this conflict, and he mentioned the idea of the blood feud and wondered whether that had something to do with it. The blood feud, as a southern cultural artifact, may indeed have had something to do with this conflict. Now, I'm a Yankee, born and bred in Massachusetts and Pennsylvania. There's no way I would have thought about this as a potential explanation. So thank you to my father for coming up with this possible explanation. So Tennessee, like my father's homeland of North Carolina, has a deep cultural history of this blood feud. In brief, a blood feud is when two families get into a tit-for-tat game of death dealing. This usually starts with some insult or violence way back in the day. The Hatfield and McCoy feuds of the late 19th century West Virginia are legendary and something of a household name at this point. But Tennessee had its own nasty history with vengeance. Only 60 years prior to the Battle of Athens in 1881 and 1882, six people had died in one night in a feud surrounding a family named Mabry near Knoxville, north of Athens. Eastern Tennessee, including McMinn County, was deep in Appalachia and had only just gotten the radio, remember? You're talking about a culture steeped in these ideas of vengeance and familial ties. Did the idea of igniting a 19th century blood feud tradition or some flavor of it have something to do with the lack of violence? Did the G.I.s who calmed the conflict understand this? I don't know. Maybe it's a stretch. But, I mean, it is something that nobody died in this conflict. It's actually made this podcast easier to record. I can put in all kinds of sound effects, like roosters crowing or whatever... And I don't have to worry about upsetting the ghosts of those who perished at the Battle of Athens. And you know, it, this doesn't just go for the G.I. sparing lives. It also goes for the deputies. Remember at the waterworks, Windy Weiss stood there facing a hostile crowd, and he didn't fire. As terrible as he was, Windy Weiss did not let Tom Gillespie bleed out on the street in the last chapter. That's not to say that people didn't get hurt. Some of these people had debilitating injuries that affected them for the rest of their lives. But in the end, I think everybody was grateful that nobody had died. Now, back to the aftermath. On August 2nd, armed men walked the streets, just in case violence broke out again. One of Otto Kennedy's brothers famously toted around a Tommy gun, and while he didn't exactly pose for the gaggle of photographers that were showing up from out of town, he made it clear what was going on. The Chattanooga Times, that J.B. Collins worked for, and which had been so involved in the entire conflict, published their morning edition on August 2nd. In it, they said that, quote, McMinn County's day of violence and fear will do more to arouse Tennessee to the evils of machine politics than anything that happened in the state yesterday, end quote. Basically, they're saying the voting day had its own results, but it was the riot that's going to steal the headlines. And boy, was it stealing headlines. The GIs were out on the street, the public was out on the street, Now that morning had come, people were starting to get antsy. Cantrell hadn't actually shown up, Mansfield hadn't actually shown up, and all they'd gotten was a word from the guy named George Woods saying that they had conceded the election. Which is why Otto Kennedy traveled out to Etowah, about 10 miles away, to talk to the only Cantrell anyone could find, Frank Cantrell, mayor of Etowah, and Paul Cantrell's brother. Now, you might recall a conversation between Otto Kennedy, the Republican operative, and Frank Cantrell, the mayor of Etowah, because they had talked at the beginning of the election. Remember, they had said, Hey, hey, buddy, I hope there's no violence. Yeah, that didn't really work out, did it? No, both of them had actually sat out the violence. Well, Otto Kennedy had punched a couple people in the face— but suffice to say, they were now meeting at the end of a conflict where lots of faces had been punched and they were trying to resolve it. So Frank actually had enough authority to give the following statement. Quote, On behalf of my brother, Paul Cantrell, I wish to concede the election to the GI candidates in order to prevent further shooting. Quote. <laughs> I I really like this dig at the GIs in the last part to prevent further shooting. That's pretty funny. But that statement got the job done. Otto Kennedy now had an assurance directly from a Cantrell, even if it wasn't the Cantrell, that violence would stop. Frank, in turn, wanted assurances that Otto Kennedy would not hunt down the Cantrell family and that there wouldn't be retribution. Again, supporting the blood feud theory. During the siege, Cantrell's family had actually vacated town, something I don't blame them for considering that Paul Cantrell himself almost got shot on his way out. Otto Kennedy assured Frank Cantrell that there would be no retributions against his family. When Kennedy got back to town after the meeting with Frank Cantrell, he could feel the tension in the air. Some of the G.I.s who had been left in town, fearing for the lives of the deputies, actually moved them out of town to try to forestall any mob rushing into the jail and beating them to death. Kennedy enlisted a local minister, Bernie Hampton, to deliver the news of the Cantrell concession. This minister said, You've won the battle. Now don't lose the war. Otto Kennedy then explained his morning meeting with Frank Cantrell. And then right on time, dispelling some of the August heat, a rain began to fall. Dust and soot and blood started to wash away. The crowd began to go home. Others stayed, and they continued to clean up. Cars had to be overturned. Streets swept. A woman whose apartment had been commandeered by the G.I.s during the conflict had a burst water pipe possibly from return fire, and needed help fixing it. Everyone agreed to meet in the courthouse at 4 p.m. So when 4 p.m. rolled around, that formerly barricaded courthouse now hosted a town meeting. Townsfolk, and probably plenty of folks from beyond Athens, packed into that courthouse and overflowed into the halls. My wife actually found a great picture of this event. In the crowd gathered in the courthouse, you see young and old, people in ties and people in suspenders, in its standing room only. This part of the story started to involve a lot of new characters, people making decisions in the town meeting about what kind of new order there would be. I'm not going to make you suffer through all of that. Let's just say the decisions were made in a democratic and discursive manner. The people present, many of them GIs, many more concerned citizens, talked through their problems. Solutions arose. The Most important was an immediate plan to keep the peace. Governor McCord claimed to anyone who asked that he'd received no word asking for help in the post-siege Athens, and as such, wouldn't provide any. That meant no occupying guard troops or state police or anyone to enforce the law. Those present at the meeting agreed to a three-person committee that would be in charge of the interim, and patrolmen would be posted in Athens and Etowah, with a portion of them responding to any lawlessness going on around the county. This all had to happen and had to happen fast. To the people in that room, there must have been an enormous amount of uncertainty about the legal gray area they'd entered. It's not like it says in the state constitution, hey, if you have a corrupt election, here's what you do. They'd entered new territory. For all they knew, the governor might try to rerun the election. What if he didn't accept the charred and blood-soaked results? Emotions had calmed, and the people of McMinn County had to take responsibility for their actions. Now, Cantrell had resigned from his own brother's lips to God's ears, but what about Mansfield? Was the old sheriff still out there, angry that it didn't go his way? Hard to say. The town now sat firmly under a veil of anxiety. As the law and order meeting let out, the people of McMinn County spent the evening talking to another great source of anxiety, namely the reporters. They came from all over. One young reporter was Theodore H. White, who wrote one of the more infamous articles about the conflict, published in Harper's Magazine. You might remember me mentioning Theodore H. White saying that Cantrell was just money-grubbing and that's all he was. Well, now that you've seen what happened and you've seen that Theodore H. White arrived after the conflict is over, now you sort of get an idea of why he came up with the words that he did. Other reporters wrote about anything they could. Some of them were terrified by what was going on. One man said that every crazy son of a bitch in this town is carrying a gun. But they wanted interviews, and they got them. One reporter got an interview with Wendy Weiss himself, fresh off the vicious beating he'd received from the mob. Wendy Weiss said in this interview, quote, No hard feelings. I don't blame the boys for wanting to get in a few licks at me. I had it coming. How do I feel? Man, I hurt all over, end quote. A picture of Wendy Weiss shows cracked lips and a savaged face. But in a real turn of irony, Wendy Weiss said that if the G.I.s needed help keeping the peace, he'd step up. No joke. He also gave Paul Cantrell some credit, saying that Cantrell didn't have to stay in the jail that night, but he did. That's in comparison to the G.I. candidates who'd all left town, remember. That morning, the gray lady, the New York Times, had published a story saying that the sheriff had been killed. This obviously wasn't true, but the United States paper of record had carried it, and now the rumor went out across the country that the Athenian G.I.s in Tennessee had actually taken a life during their siege. As the morning and afternoon editions of the papers were digested by people across Tennessee, those bosses of the Democrat political machine must have realized how badly they'd screwed up. The Democrats started to tamp down on any rumors that Athens had influence on the machine as a whole. Athens, they told the press, was an isolated incident. The press could smell blood, though, and they made assertions anyway. Many connected lawlessness in Athens to weakness in the Crump machine. But while there were mistakes in the press and different exaggerations, I actually think there's a gross miscarriage of journalism that came out of a paper from Knoxville. Late in the day on August 2nd, that paper stated that a column of armed men had struck out from neighboring Polk County. Polk County was another cog in the Democrat machine. According to the paper, Sheriff Mansfield had gone to Polk County. There, he'd linked up with Democrat forces, and he was on his way back. The ragtag army of Democrats in an armored column intended to invade Athens, wrest it from the GIs, and place the Cantrell machine back in power. Athens went into a frenzy. More volunteer militants responded than during the battle itself, Guns were already close at hand, and people picked them up again. Snipers were placed atop the Robert E. Lee Hotel and the hardware store. G.I.s set up roadblocks on Highway 411 and prepared to demolish the bridge to force a battle at the creek instead of closer to town. And just to prove how seriously people took this story, some G.I. pilots experienced in the war took to the air. Commandeering a so-called Texan, the AT-6, They took flight and patrolled the roads leading into town, intending to report on troop movements. Here's the sound of one of these aircraft taking off. As far as we know, this is the only airplane involved in the events of 1946. The G.I.s at one of the roadblocks I mentioned actually scrambled when a car approached them. When the man tried to drive around the roadblock, not knowing what it was, militiamen lit up the car with gunfire. The man inside, however, had had no idea what was going on and had been coming from Polk County on business. He sustained injuries to both legs. The businessman was, fortunately, the only casualty of the conflict because this was fake news. That's right. The Knoxville paper that had reported on this armed column coming out of Polk County had relied on a rumor. There was no armed column, and the sheriff, Pat Mansfield, was nowhere to be found. The G.I. stood down. But even after the press had damn near created a riot, newspapers seized on the injury of this businessman. I guess it's not enough to just be wrong, you have to double down on it. For instance, the Long Beach Independent out of Long Beach, California, reported, quote, one injured, a new outbreak, end quote. For the press, this just seemed like the latest in the lawlessness of the GIs. You see this kind of hyperventilating all over the papers at the time. But if you were on the ground, it probably felt less traumatic and more annoying than anything else. Remember, prior to the battle, the press had played down any idea that there would be a conflict. Now it was the opposite. They were looking for a conflict. But, you know, it bleeds, it leads. The next day, at church, the G.I.s and townspeople sung hymns about peace and understanding and received word that Pat Mansfield would step down effective immediately, giving Knox Henry, the G.I. candidate for sheriff, an extra month on the job. There's a picture of Knox Henry being sworn in. He wears a big grin on his face, and this new sheriff acted swiftly. The new G.I. sheriff raided a couple speakeasies in someone's house. Things were going back to normal. Republican Otto Kennedy was appointed chief deputy. Now, this is funny, considering that the Democrats had thrown the Republicans under the bus, saying that they were behind the entire G.I. effort. And here they were, back in power. I'll let you do with that information what you will. One major and immediate change the G.I.s made to the sheriff's office was to limit the sheriff's salary to $5,000. That eliminated the fee-grabbing bonuses. Completely. No more fee-grabbing. No more fee-grabbing deputies. A $5,000 salary in 1946, according to an inflation calculator, is about $65,000 today, which is not too bad for a public servant. I can only really find one quality post-battle interview with the principal player of the Cantrell machine. That's an interview with Pat Mansfield. He ran down to Georgia in sort of a self-imposed exile. This quote is great from him. Quote, I'm through with politics for good. It'll sure mess you up sometimes. I'm going back to railroading. End quote. Thus ends the reign of Pat Mansfield. You're probably wondering what happened to our friend Paul Cantrell after he fled into the dark. It's a good story in itself. On election night, Cantrell's family had listened to WLAR, and they'd feared for him. As the siege wore on, Mrs. Cantrell fled Etowah with her daughters. They were running for their lives, I think. They went to Nashville, the center of Democrat power in the state. They had friends there from Cantrell's long years of serving in office. For his part, Paul Cantrell tried to rely on his allies in eastern Tennessee. After fleeing Athens, he and Pat Mansfield allegedly tried to meet up and find a safe haven in a different jail. They were denied entrance. Nobody wanted to touch them. So Mansfield had gone to Georgia like the devil, and Cantrell eventually got himself to Nashville on a circuitous bus route. He was able to find his family and reunite with them. When he got off the bus in Nashville, he didn't look like the suave politician everyone knew. His suit was rumpled and dirty, without his Stetson hat and his head was bare, and he wasn't wearing his glasses. More than anything, Paul Cantrell looked tired and old, but he was relieved. He allegedly said in the days after that, quote, I wanted to get things straightened out. I wanted to get out of politics, but I didn't want it to happen this way, End quote. You know, this is interesting. Kind of seems like Paul Cantrell knew his ascent to the governor's mansion was stalled, if not stopped completely. In that statement, you find a little bit of humility in Paul Cantrell. By Wednesday, a week after the incident, people began to lose interest in the election story, even the native Athenians. The GIs had taken over and life went on. That was not what was going on nationwide. No, actually, people were really enthusiastic about reading about Athens. Headlines read things like, Rebellion in Tennessee, and my favorite, Tennessee Tea Party. That's alliteration and a historical reference. Probably one of the most high-profile responses to the Battle of Athens was by Eleanor Roosevelt herself, the former First Lady, widow of FDR. This ran in her regular column in the New York Times. It was called, McMinn, a warning... And it had a lot of interesting passages in it. I was thinking of reading out the entire thing to you, but instead I'll pull out one passage. She says, Any local, state, or national government, or any political machine, in order to live, must give the people assurances that they can express their will freely and that their votes will be counted. The most powerful political machine cannot exist without the support of the people. Political bosses and political machinery can be good, but the minute they cease to express the will of the people, their days are numbered. End quote. I mean, it's easy for her to say that political machines are good, because political machines are what got her husband into power. But the political machines create corruption, and they created the corruption that led directly to this battle. So there you go, the New York Times publishing an opinion piece that political machines are good, but they're good only until they're bad, right? Well, opinions from the New York Times did not stop there. One of their opinion columns stated, quote, "Corruption, when and where it exists, demands reform. And even in the most corrupt and boss-ridden communities, there are peaceful means by which reform can be achieved. But there is no substitute in a democracy for orderly process." Quote. This paragraph drives me nuts. It's cringe-worthy at best and enraging at worst. The New York Times published their opinion column long before all the facts came in. Facts, such as the malfeasance by the Cantrell machine and the lack of interest of the FBI, for instance, are the things that came to light later. Then again, the New York Times, our paper of record, had just spent recent years downplaying the Holocaust, so maybe they had bigger stories to chase. Anyway, you do get the feeling from reading the -the after-the-fact articles on the subject, and there's too many to read, that this battle scared the daylights out of the entire country. Let me read some other headlines. Citizens rule in Athens, Tennessee. City officials make no attempt to return. That was from the Pittsburgh Press, August 3, 1946. The El Paso Herald Post in Texas said, McMinn County's new GI nonpartisan administration born of bullets, bombs, and bloodshed was to be certified here today. I think you see the theme here. Athens either scared the hell out of you, or it made you think that freedom was having resurgence post-World War II. Some reported on the facts, but these article titles and content are kind of editorializing in themselves. But if the battle itself didn't terrify people, some of the events afterwards did. On August 8th and August 10th, there were two separate veteran uprises in Arkansas and in Tennessee. These were copycat events. G.I.s formed G.I. tickets, and they threatened a riot if corruption was not stamped out at the local level. Violence was kept under control and didn't break out, but the threat was there. So on the one hand, you had lecturing by the New York Times. On the other, you had sensational headlines. And in the end, to me, it started to create the copycat events that supposedly everybody was afraid of. In my opinion, you're seeing sort of the negative feedback loop that the press can create. Sometimes it's better to leave things alone than to report on them and editorialize on them endlessly until more violence breaks out. But, you know, it's the 1940s equivalent of clickbait. Top 10 ways to overthrow your local government. Or, these GIs decided to run for office. You won't believe what happened next. I think what I want to get across is, That just like the veterans put the jail under siege during the Battle of Athens, the media really had Athens under siege afterwards. You had Eleanor Roosevelt in the New York Times opinion column writing, well, outright nonsense about this conflict. They were making things up. They were using what little facts they had in order to make up a narrative that fit cleanly into what they had thought. I think that's the lesson I want people to learn when they listen to this podcast and they hear about the aftermath of this conflict. Your narrative may not be your own. You may not be defining it. Your story can be retold over and over again by anyone. Heck, it can be retold by an amateur podcaster in Pennsylvania. Nowadays, you hear that the news cycle is about a week, maybe even a day. News comes in, news goes out. Garbage in, garbage out. Well, eventually, Athens, too, started to fall out of the paper. One week later, in the August 8th edition of the Nashville Tennessean, one of the biggest papers in Tennessee, a tiny article on the front page below the fold talked about the Athens GIs. By August 15th, Athens is at the bottom of the front page in the lower right-hand corner below the fold in a story about the Good Government League, which was formed afterwards, and I'll talk about that in a minute. By August 22nd, Athens is a passing mention, and by the beginning of September, Athens isn't on the front page at all. Escalating tensions with Russia captured most of the headlines instead. This, in the end, is also what I see as the problem with any kind of a revolt. In the immediacy of the event, the cause is just. Things are clear. You find yourself in a situation of right versus wrong, and you take action. And then maybe you succeed. But once the event's over... You're now responsible for explaining it to people. Most of all, you're responsible for the politics of what you did. Carrying your cause past the second-guessing, the new narratives, and the politicking is really, in the end, just as hard, if not harder, to pull off than the original David and Goliath event. Another thing to note. Sometime, when we had just turned 30, my wife reminded me of the phrase don't trust anyone over the age of 30. There's a lot of truth to that idea. The street fighting was done by young people. Bill White sounds like a grizzled veteran, and he was, but he was also under the age of 25, as were many of the G.I.s who were involved in the riot. But it wasn't the 20-year-old veterans that wrote the opinion articles afterwards. No, the elders leave the street fights to the young. Just look at Otto Kennedy, who would come up with the idea of the armed G.I.s in the first place and then left town or look at the generals and the politicians who make war decisions while young soldiers meet bombs, bullets, and bloodshed. The old sit out the fight, and they write opinion pieces about it, and they'll adjudicate afterwards. Eleanor Roosevelt will pontificate, the New York Times opinion column will give you free advice, and you'll be standing on the street with a gun trying to figure out what the heck happened. Case in point about not trusting people over 30 In the second week of August following the attack, a group of citizens came together, most of them sporting some kind of gray hair, and not one of them were the G.I.s that we've come to know. These elder statesmen had gathered to form a new group. This would be called the Good Government League. Their objective was to foster a new governmental system in Athens and to be a watchdog for government goings-on. Inspired by the idealism of the G.I.s, but tempered by practicality, It was executed by none of the people who'd fought in the battle we just saw. The formation of an oversight and politic league is a great place to leave off, because the aftershocks of the Athens conflict are interesting in and of themselves. In the next episode, I'll let you know what happened to the Good Government League, and importantly, what happened to our friends Paul Cantrell and Bill White. Until next time, look out for gray hairs, and join me for Chapter 6, Consequences. (音楽) Okay?